Welcome to Advocates for Truth, where we discuss uh, the intersection of truth and opinion. Today, we're going to be talking about Proposition 25, which is on the ballot in California. Uh, and uh, we have with us today Neil Hardin, our resident theologian. And I've also asked my good friend Nick Kosis. Uh, Nick is a Christian criminal defense attorney. And uh, I really appreciate his wisdom. Nick and I have spent a lot of time together over lunch and just as friends discussing all sorts of issues. And I appreciate Nick's perspective. And I think it's going to be really helpful. Uh, last uh, uh, video that we did, we went through all of the propositions. Uh, we had Netta here. We had Neil on one side of Prop 25. We had Ned on the other side of Prop 25. And I myself hadn't researched it enough to figure it out. So um, I think that uh, this would be real uh, or is going to be real helpful today to uh, figure out maybe how we should be voting on Prop 25 when we really want to be looking at this from a biblical perspective. We, uh, our goal with uh, Advocates for Truth is to give you uh, articles on our blog that address current issues uh, from a biblical perspective. And then what we're doing on these videos too is to try to dig into them a little deeper. And we're going to dig into Prop 25. This is about bail uh, reform. Should bail be eliminated in California in favor of uh, some new structure, algorithm uh, type structure that creates uh, different tiers for determining whether someone should be uh, released on bail or not? Uh, it concerns me a little bit. It seems as though, almost as though Prop 25 is going to create, be a, a circumstance where there is a computer that determines whether someone gets out of jail uh, pending trial. Bail is this process where an individual can post money and, and get out of jail on, on, on bail or through a bond. But are, are we going to, are we going to, determine whether someone stays in jail based upon some computer algorithm. I'm a little concerned about that. So, uh, Nick, why don't you give us uh, your your synopsis of 25? What do you think about it? Um, I probably have to start maybe with a little bit uh, of a background. So bail is been the law that is bail. Essentially what it is, it's it's um, buying a in, uh, an insurance policy from a bail company. So when a person's been arrested, the only way the person could get out currently uh, is either when the judge releases him on his promise to show up to court, or if the person buys a, a an insurance policy called a bail bond, which ensures that the person will return to court. Can they can they put up cash instead? So if it's a fifty thousand uh, dollar bail that. You know, a rich person could just come in and write a check to the uh, to the court. You can now. I can tell you, in 21 years that I've been practicing criminal law, that's seldom done. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult for uh, anyone to write a check for fifty thousand dollars and for that money to sit with a court for however long the case will take to resolve. It is possible to do it. It's unlikely that that's going to happen. And, and most bonds company bond companies, these bail bondsmen, they usually charge like. Uh, Ten percent, right, and and require security in some instances. Exactly. So, uh, depending on the bail amount, so what happens is every county has what is called a bail schedule currently. So, for example, if a person gets arrested for, let's say, you Bob get arrested for a whatever offense, let's say, pick domestic violence, um, in Riverside County, the corresponding bail schedule says that uh, if you don't have a criminal record, then the corresponding bail amount is fifty thousand. 
I would get the same bail amount and you would get the same bail amount. So we're all treated equally. Now, if you could walk in with a check for $50,000 and uh, or somebody could pay the money and uh, the money stays with the court, then you get out. Uh, you may be released on your promise to show up to court. So you don't have to keep, uh, you don't have to, you wouldn't have to leave your money with that, the court for 50 for that period of time. That's just based upon a judge saying, hey, this, he looks like a good guy. He's never committed any crime. I'll let him out on his own recognizance, right? Correctly. Okay, what about the bail bond? If someone needs to go post a bond, how they go to a bail bondsman, how much does that cost them? So, so in that example, I wouldn't. I don't have the fifty thousand dollars, and I'm not going to be released on my own recognizance or promise to show up to court. I would have to go to a bail company and ask them, to, or for me to buy a bond from them for fifty thousand dollars. And just like any uh, insurance that you buy, you have to pay a premium, and the premium is no more than ten percent. And typically, it ranges anywhere from six to ten percent. So five thousand dollars. Okay, so five thousand dollars. What is going to cost on on that kind of a bond? Uh, are do bond companies uh, require uh, that someone have real property to post as security for that bond? And they do sometimes if uh, the bond amount is very high. Let's say if it's uh, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, then uh, the insurance company, the bonding company, will want some sort of collateral in case I take off uh, and flee and never show up to court. Okay. Uh, then they'll require some collateral. So if uh, the risk of a bond company, if uh, you know it's a fifty thousand dollar bond, uh, someone comes in, pays five thousand dollars on that bond, that person doesn't show up to court and they flee the country. What happens? Does the bond company have to pay the court $50,000? Correct. So eventually the bonding company will have to pay the court $50,000. However, in the meantime, uh, the bonding company will go looking for that individual. Yeah. Dog the bounty hunter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's let's talk about uh, the application here. So I'm concerned because what they're talking about doing is eliminating that, that bond process altogether because it is deemed inequitable. Right. Correct. Why is it inequitable? Um, mainly, it's inequitable because uh, the the argument goes that the person with means, the the rich person, uh, will always be able to bail out, mm-hmm. where the person on the other extreme, the low income, uh, is not going to be able to bail out, given the current uh, situation. Neil, uh, what do you think from a biblical perspective? Is there scripture to support? this initiative in your opinion i think there is like if we look at leviticus 19:15, it says you shall not you shall do no injustice in court you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor so that's kind of like an equitable principle there mm-hmm. then you shall not defer to the poor nor to the rich so that seems to be saying treat people equally treat people fairly which frankly in our constitution of the united states there's an equal protection clause as well as in our Constitution in the state of California. And as we know, when we go back in history, so much of our Constitution is really based upon biblical principles of equal protection. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, I think that there, I can see that there's some biblical uh, reasons to want to change the law. Um, I'm concerned though, because uh, maybe this isn't the right way to change it, because you, the likelihood is there's going to be, if there is no bail and, and people are getting out, we already have a problem in California because of past initiatives that have passed or, or 
legislation that's been adopted where you have people who are committing crimes who are being released from jail. And, you know, we here in, in our hometown, we're not, there's a, there's a jail in our hometown, a countywide jail, and crime has increased dramatically in that uh, since those new laws, people getting out of jail, they walk out of jail and they literally go down into neighboring track homes and people's houses and they commit crimes. They steal cars to get back to wherever they came from. And so I'm a little bit concerned personally about, well, maybe this isn't the right way to do it. I understand there's, there's an equitable, possible biblical reason for saying, hey, we need to treat people equitably, equitably but is this the right way to treat people equitably? What do you think, Nick? Um, I hear what you're saying. I, I uh, maybe disagree a little bit is, and I look at it from uh, uh, sort of from a legal perspective, right? A person who's been arrested is presumed to be not guilty or presumed to be innocent. And uh, just because a person may or potentially commit a crime, if he's released on bail, that shouldn't, that doesn't mean that he, that no one should be released out of custody. So uh, if a person's really, if you really believe that a person who's been arrested is presumed to be uh, innocent, then that person should be entitled to some sort of a release from bail. Now, whether uh, from jail, whether it involves bail or house arrest or some sort of a condition of that person being released so that person could go back to his family or her job and uh, continue to uh, to live their lives while they're fighting their case. You referenced a job. Uh, I've known people who have lost their jobs. They've been arrested. Uh, they're innocent of a crime and and it ruins their life. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, have you seen that in your in your you know, I, I've you... seen it, uh, you know, and, and it's a very sad situation. Of, uh, let's say uh, the f uh, husband gets arrested and uh, for whatever the offense may be. And uh, let's say he is the sole provider uh, and, uh, you know, no employer wants to get a call from jail saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to make it to work today. And, uh, you know, and it's a very sad situation, not only for him losing his job or his family, I've seen uh, young adults uh, who were not able to post the bail. And uh, although they had a job, they just uh, were in a financial position to post bail and uh, they lost their jobs. Okay, I got to tell you a story. So I'm in law school in evidence class. And uh, my, my professor uh, or my, you know, the, the teacher, he was a criminal defense attorney. And he was, he was fantastic. Uh, one of the things I learned about evidence through that class was that if applied accurately and properly, uh, our, our rule of law was inspired biblically. And if the rule of evidence is applied properly, the truth will come out. You know, if everyone does their job perfectly, now we're all infallible human beings. We're going to mess up and lawyers are not perfect and some are better than others. But I learned that. But more importantly is this story I want to tell you. So uh, I'm sitting in the class and the, and the judge says, Oh, excuse me, the judge, this, the professor says, I've been teaching criminal law for, it was like 30 years at the time. And he said, and you know what? In all my years of, of representing uh, criminal defendants, uh, there was only one instance where I knew my client was innocent. And I was like, wow. And, you know, doing it that long. And there's only one time that you knew that your client was innocent. I thought, wow. And he said, he said, uh, he said, yes, it could, because my client had an alibi and I was kind of shocked. And he says, you know, my, where my client had an alibi? Well, at the same time that the liquor store was being robbed, my client 
at the same time had a bank teller who was his alibi. And, and he says that that bank teller uh, was being held up at gunpoint by my client. <laughs> and he says, so that's the only time that I knew my client was innocent of the crime alleged. Oh, boy. You know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of people, a lot of conservatives who often come with a, an approach that says, hey, you know, hey, guilty until proven innocent when it comes to a crime. That's not really a biblical approach. What do you think, Neil? No, I mean, I mean, the principle in our law and I think even scripture goes about this the right way is that we're innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, scripture requires that you have two witnesses. Um in, in, in a lot of different cases. And so it's, you don't take it just at the word of one person saying this person did this. You need witnesses, you need evidence, you need to bring all these things to bear in order to prove that someone is guilty and needs to be punished. Uh, Nick, uh, wh what's your experience? You know, I mean, you've represented, you've been doing this for 21 years. Um, how, how often do you come across a client who, you know, you think is, is innocent? You know, that's a very, that's a common question I get asked all the time and whether, you know, in this context or whether I'm with uh, people who don't have experience with a, with a criminal system. I like to look at it a little bit differently, though. Uh, criminal defense lawyers in the field of law, criminal defense lawyers or a portion of it. Uh, you know, I like to uh, sort of uh, think of ourselves as uh, emergency room doctors. A person's been arrested uh, or in the context of an emergency room doctor, a person's been injured in an accident, whatnot, they go to the emergency room. The doctor doesn't sit there and determine, well, is this person driving under the influence and got into an accident? And well, I'm against uh, drinking and driving, so I'm not going to treat this person. Mm -hmm. um, so criminal, I look at, at a person who comes into my office or a family member who come on behalf of someone else, someone, someone that they love, who's been arrested. And I, I look at them and I say, they need help. I don't pass judgment as far as why they're in jail or whether they're guilty or innocent. They need help. Mm -hmm. And that's how I like to look at it. So when you're giving me the example with uh, with your law professor, uh, he sounds like he's been practicing for 30 years now. I don't know how many clients he had during those 30 years. Maybe he only had one client. I don't <laughs> I know. Might, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I have seen in, in my practice uh, uh, plenty of people who they might not be innocent, completely innocent, uh, but they may be innocent of what the prosecution's accusing them. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, there's a very fine distinction between robbery and grand theft. Uh, prosecutors tend to overcharge mm -hmm. uh, cases. So the person may be innocent of robbery. He may be guilty of grand theft, which is a lesser offense. So I've seen plenty of those. And, and let's give another good example. Nick uh, worked with us in defense of our clients, ministers who were arrested in front of the Department of Motor Vehicles because they were reading the Bible out loud. Uh, the, we defended them. And the thing about this was that they were charged with a crime. And the crime that they were charged with initially was interfering with an open business uh, through threats and intimidation. Well, the business was closed because the Department of Motor Vehicles wasn't even open yet. And uh, the mere reading of scripture was deemed to be uh, threats and intimidation by the California Highway Patrol at the time. So, you know, there's a real important role for criminal defense attorneys uh, to play. 
And, and I know that's really not why we're talking about this, but I do want to say that, that one, there are people who are in fact innocent of crimes because there's often, as you say, charges are elevated beyond what they really should be. Um, in, in this particular case, there was an, it really came down to, did they have a permit to be there or not? Not whether they committed a crime. Secondly, um, there are criminal defense attorneys play an important role. If, if we really believe innocent until proven guilty, uh, they have to be proven guilty. And, and I think it's extremely important that we have individuals who are going to hold accountable um, those you know, police officers, uh, district attorneys, courts, uh, to prevent uh, injustice from occurring. And even if that injustice might only occur, you know, may, maybe there's only 1% of the people who are actually innocent. We need to protect. We need to make sure that our due process is, is protected. We, we do. And, uh, you know, I could think of uh, about 30 years ago, 1989, a little bit more than 30 years ago, the Tiananmen Square Revolution in, in uh, uh, China. And there's a famous photo of a student uh, who was in the square and uh and he's standing uh, in front of three tanks that are about to go into the square and, and blocking those tanks from entering. Uh, and uh, that's how I see the role of a criminal defense lawyer. It is the one person who's standing in front of the full force and might of the state coming down, crashing on the person who's been arrested. Mm -hmm. The state has resources, unlimited resources, theoretically. Uh, the uh, prosecution's office or the prosecutor, the law enforcement agency, uh, unlimited budget, uh, essentially. And then you have one person who's been arrested, who's standing next to this criminal defense lawyer in court. Uh, and that's how I see my, my role mm -hmm. in its, uh, in its, uh, uh, I've learned that and it's been influenced by my upbringing. I, uh, grew up in Romania and we came here in 1983 when, uh, Romania was still a communist country. Uh, the, Communist countries fell in 1989. Uh, my parents uh, were persecuted. Uh, they were falsely accused, uh, persecuted uh, and falsely accused for being, uh, I mean, persecuted because they were Christian and falsely accused of uh, all kinds of things, which- uh, Because were, of their faith. Exactly, were deemed illegal in that, in that country. Going to church was illegal. Uh, now they're, rightly accused of that because we did go to church. Uh, so, uh, you know, but uh, when it came to their jobs, they're falsely accused in front of uh, their coworkers, uh, in front of their, my, my two brothers were brought up in front of their high school uh, for the mere fact that they were baptized and uh, they were uh, mistreated. Uh, so anyway, so when I see that, um, uh, not when I see it, but that's how I am. Uh, that's what I'm influenced by. And that's why I think I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I like to stand up for what is right uh, and, uh, and keep the government at bay. Yeah. Uh, eventually, if the person, the client is found guilty, uh, my job as a criminal defense lawyer is not to, it is not to make sure that the person does not go to jail or go to prison. Uh, prisons are there and uh, they serve a good purpose. But my job as a criminal defense lawyer is to make sure that the accused has his day in court. If there is evidence to find him guilty, then so be it. But there are not going to be any shortcuts. Uh, the prosecution is going to be held to their standard. And uh, 
And if they have evidence, they have evidence. So interesting stuff. Nick, we're going to talk about, we got to have you back on another day. And I think we'll talk about, you know, this new socialist movement in the United States. And, you know, I've, uh, we'll talk about that because of your background. That's interesting. Let's get back to uh, the, uh, this whole tiered thing in Proposition 25, where, you know, the computer is going to, instead of having bail, we understand there's some inequities involved. Uh, now that we're talking about some computer system, I mean, it almost sounds Orwellian to have a computer system determining when someone is going to be released from jail or not. Neil, can you explain that a little bit more on, on how that works? Yeah, so the terminology in the bill is a validated risk assessment tool. So it's going to uh, take into consideration things like, has this person committed crimes before? Um, what kinds of crimes do they commit? Uh, have they skipped uh, previous court hearings? You know, and, and based on all, all these other types of factors, it's going to put them into three different tiers. There's going to be a high tier, like a high risk tier, a medium risk tier, and a low risk tier. Um, you know, a lot of like misdemeanor crimes will be put in the low risk tier, you know, things that weren't very serious, or if this is their first offense, or, you know, if they have good reason to suspect that they will show up to their court date and not commit a new crime while they're out on, uh, on their own recognizance. So, you know, based on all these factors, it'll put them into a tier, but it's not as if uh, it's completely determined by an algorithm, and there's no like, judge or anyone who can say otherwise in, the, in, in this. So Okay. Let's talk about the high-risk tier first. Mm-hmm. So the high-risk tier, they don't get out of jail. Most of them, yes. Okay. And what's included in high-risk tiers? Felonies of certain nature? Or? Yeah, yeah. Typically, it's a, it's a, a, really the determining factor is, is what's the likelihood of the person returning to court if he's released out of jail and uh, or um, uh, what's the likelihood of the person committing a crime while released. What about the nature and, of the crime? I mean, if someone's accused you, of murder. Uh, of course, uh, that's a, the facts of the case were taken into account. Uh, the person's background, his ties to, ties to the community, uh, previous criminal record, previous uh, failures to show up to court uh, as promised. Okay. All so those that's are the, taken into account. So that's the top tier. That's that third tier. Um, and then there's a middle tier, and that second tier is where the judge gets involved, if I'm not mistaken. Do I understand that right, Neil? As far as I understand it, there's going to be less, there's going to be more discernment because maybe they've been arrested maybe like once before, or there's there's just, a, there needs a, a, a person to be involved and really kind of make that call. Mm-hmm. So there's like, there's maybe a little bit of risk, but, you know, they have to get a person, a judge involved to make that call. Okay. So... The judge is not involved in tier three, though, the highest tier, right? If it has the most risk, then they automatically stay in jail? Uh, from my reading of the statute, that's correct, yeah. And, and Nick, what, do you know what, I mean, what, what kind of crimes are we talking about? It, it, is it all felonies or is it, is it only murders that are in tier three? Or can some accused murderers get out on? Uh, no, typically uh, the high-risk persons, again, are... are the person who is unlikely to come back to court and why is that person unlikely to show up to court? Again, it, it deals with the person's uh, uh, previous criminal record, failures to show up to court. Okay. As far as the felonies are, typically they're the violent felonies and obviously murder is the most violent uh, felony you can commit. Also the uh, sex-related type of crimes and you could imagine all kinds of uh, variations of that, but typically those are the high risk um stalking is another one um so which, those will be in the those those are in the third tier 
normally, exactly, typically. Yeah, those are the typical offenses that fall into, into that high risk kind does, of category. Does the does this proposition identify which risks, what 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 crimes are in the third tier? It uh, it does. It makes reference to what they're called uh, violent felonies, and typically those are the murders, the robberies, the rapes. The okay. There are certain definitions. Okay, so there's some definition there. And it's also important to keep in mind one of the other propositions we discussed um, was a Proposition 20, I believe. It'll grant uh, new classifications of certain crimes to be put in the uh, violent felony category as well. Okay, so um, so the idea here is that this tiered system eliminates bail. So if you're in the bottom tier, you're free. You you. You get booked and you're released. Is that how it works? Those are, uh, yeah, the bottom tier, the low risk are, are um, a handful of misdemeanors or mainly misdemeanor offenses, shoplifting, you know, those kind of things. Okay, so um, what do you think, Nick? I mean, in, in, in the long run, what do you think about getting rid of bail and replacing it with this new tiered system? Um I'm a little bit torn, uh, and I was mentioning uh, to you prior to the uh, to this video that uh, I'm a little bit torn about Proposition 25. And uh, every time you see uh, Human Rights Watch and ACLU on the same side with the bail industry, it kind of raises eyebrows. And uh, those are the uh, people Why? against. Yeah. Um, uh, typically, you don't see uh, uh, the bail industry advocating for justice and truth. Uh, you know, it's a business organization, and they're uh, looking at the at their bottom line. Yeah, the more people that are forced into bail, the better it is for the bond companies. You got it. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so it it uh, it kind of. And where, how does the ACLU relate to that, though? I mean, it sounds like you're saying that most of the time, the ACLU and the Human Rights Watch. Uh, you know, they're together on this question. Are they are they against the bail industry effectively? Uh, they're against uh, Prop Twenty Five. Okay. So, as well as um, numerous uh, sheriffs and victim rights organizations. Uh, maybe I'm not. Uh, I didn't look at every uh, person who's yeah. uh, pro or against. So uh, assume what I just said is true because it. we looked into it. Okay. So um, there are victim rights organizations and numerous uh, law enforcement agencies who are opposed to it, and they're on the same side as the ACLU and apparently Human Rights Watch. That that's what you said, right? Yeah, Those yeah. they're they're against twenty five as well. You got it. Okay. So that that is interesting in and of itself. So what do you ex further explain? I, what concerns you? So my concern is is I I, I wish that there were a combination of bail and uh, sort of a pretrial services risk analysis. I think that that would be ideal. Mm -hmm. um, currently, the bail uh, system that we have is unjust. And uh, whether you come from uh, to it from a biblical perspective, which I do, or whether you just look at it from uh, a secular justice kind of a perspective, uh, I don't think that there's any dispute that it is unjust where the rich person gets uh, to go home, where the poor person charged with the same offense uh, stays in jail and has all kinds of uh, consequences as a result. So that by itself, I think is unjust. Mm -hmm. uh, now, when on the other extreme, which is Proposition 25, which uh, you have uh, a determination uh, where if you are arrested for a certain offense, uh, then you automatically stay in jail. 
you know, uh, uh, I think that that's unjust too. And here's why I say it's unjust is because um, I looked at the language of the, of the proposition and one of the offenses uh, that, uh, that will keep you in jail, period, is a misdemeanor domestic violence. Mm. And, uh, uh, and it's not just, so there are two types of misdemeanor domestic violence in, in the law. There's the type of domestic violence where, uh, uh, where it results in a redness to the cheek or a scratch, right. nothing major, but nonetheless, the offense is serious offense. And then there's the other misdemeanor uh, domestic violence where uh, a person could be found guilty of that if you cause what it's called offensive touching. Yeah. And uh, many, many years ago, one of my very first jury trial involved that kind of a misdemeanor offense where the offensive touching was the person spitting on, on the other person. It's offensive touching. If you are arrested for that, for the spitting on your spouse, then you are locked up in jail. You cannot be released. You're determined a uh, high risk and you will stay in jail. Where normally, currently in Riverside County, bail for something like that would be 2500 You pay 10% of that, it would be about $250 to get out of jail. And what fight are the, the case from the outside. What other examples of offensive touching other? Uh, you, uh, any sort this, of touching. Absolutely. That's offensive touching, right? If you touch Sorry, me with... <laughs> The touching without the permission of the other person. Yeah. It's offensive touching. So, okay, that that seems like a, a situation that is obviously concerning. I, I'm with you on that. Um, uh, tell us more. What What is your, what what else makes you concerned about about this bill, about this proposition? And and the concern I have is is what you have brought up the the sort of the, uh, all this information that's collected about the person in put into the computer system or into the algorithm, which spits out a certain uh, recommendation. Is this person a high risk, medium risk, or low risk? And uh, if the person's in the medium risk, uh, then that uh, decision will go to the judge. And I believe that it leaves uh, uh, ex an extreme amount of discretion uh, for the judge, which uh, judges are human beings. And uh, they will, uh, they have their own uh, uh, perspectives, uh, whether they're, uh, you know. Whether they're, whether they're biased or not, whether they're exactly. prejudiced I'm, or not. I'm trying to be careful. But a bit. it happens, you know. It yeah. does, yeah. And, and I could think of an example. Uh, currently, I represent somebody in a case uh, where that person was arrested for videotaping abortion providers. Mm -hmm. uh, when we went to court uh, in that case about three years ago, the attorney general was asking uh, for the bail to be set at $70,000. Mm -hmm. And what this person did is she merely recorded abortion providers discussing the abortion uh, or the fetal, um, uh, the baby parts uh, mm -hmm. traffic uh, industry. Trafficking baby parts. Exactly. So uh, at the same time, uh, and the judge agreed with that. The judge agreed that the bail should be set at $70,000, where a person who was charged with, uh, uh, for example, selling uh, a controlled substance, the, course, the bail for that person would have been $30,000. So why was, the per why was the bail set at $70,000 uh, in our cases? Because the judge's persuasion, the judge's perspective on the type of crime that mm -hmm. this person was accused of yeah. committing. 
so anyway, so uh, whenever you leave uh, to a judge's discretion, um, the bail amount is uh, you're dealing with uh, um, human beings at that point. So I guess uh, as we come down to try to conclude this, bring a landing uh, to this subject, to me, it seems as though, uh, I guess I would say personally, clearly there something needs to change. Something dramatically needs to change with regard to the system that we have, because there are injustices, there's inequity. Um, and uh, I guess for me, uh, I'm not sure uh, whether this is the right solution, whether Prop 25 is. It concerns me significantly whether it is or not, because you have you have law enforcement and the ACLU on the same side of the issue. And um, so that's one reason why I'm, a, why I'm opposed to it. Well, I shouldn't say I am opposed to it. I'm leaning to be opposed to it. Um, and at the same time, I see the injustice and think, well, how can we, you know, I just don't know which one's going to be the best one. Okay, so Neil, why don't you give us in 30 seconds or less uh, what you think about this bill and how you're going to vote? Yeah, so I'm generally in favor of the bill uh, because I think it undoes a systemic injustice that the cash bail system has against the poor. Uh, the bill certainly is not perfect. It can There are flaws, but I think it moves the ball in the right direction, and the flaws that it does have can be corrected later. So you're a yes vote. Yes. Uh, Nick, how about yourself? I think I agree with Neil. I'm, I'm uh, uh, tentatively yes. Boy, that's easy in, in, in 10 seconds. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll explain just a tad as well that this, uh, this is a referendum of a bill that was passed by the legislature. I believe it was passed in 2018 that the, the legislature in California passed a bill signed by the governor that was supposed to come into effect on January 1, 2019. And that bill that they passed was a new system that eliminated cash bail in favor of this um, a computer system. Okay. <laughs> might, might tell you where I'm feeling, where I'm leaning on this a little bit. Just as a tool. Just as a tool. But but that that basically so it was passed a, and and then what happened is after the bill was passed and signed by the governor, before it came into effect, uh, there was a referendum process in California where the people have the ability if they don't like uh, a, a new law that has been adopted by the legislature, they can get enough signatures and put on the ballot the question of whether or not that that new bill should go into effect. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, the interesting thing that we see all the time is the Secretary of State plays games with, um, with the language, the verbiage, whether it's a yes vote, no vote. Basically what they did here, the Secretary of State um, included the language that as a yes vote, you are voting in favor of that Senate bill that had previously been passed by the legislature. If you vote no, then you're basically voting in favor of the referendum that would, that would, uh, that would keep the law as it exists today, and that is a bail system. So uh, for me, I'm looking at it, and I, I can't tell you for sure. I'm very persuaded by the fact that uh, the law enforcement and the um, ACLU are all on the same side of it. And um, yet I, I do recognize the issue of the, you know, the fact that there's inequities involved in bail, but it also concerns me significantly that we go into a system where there may be people, particularly like you talked about the offensive touching, 
uh, circumstances where people might be forced into jail and not allowed to get out because they fall into a certain category established by, you know, this algorithm that the reality of it is I don't I'm concerned about putting people's fate in um, the, the discretion of a I'd say of, of a computer system to some degree. My concerns, uh, I don't know. Um, so I'm going to do a little more research on that. And I'd encourage everyone to, uh, you know, dig into your scripture, pray about this, and um, come to a conclusion for yourself. But please, please vote. This is an extremely important election. Uh, Christians, you have to get out and you have to make an impact. God promises us, God promises us in Proverbs that he'll give us wisdom if we ask for it. And um, I pray for wisdom for all of us as we're looking to vote and we vote on this particular ballot. Um, so thanks for being a part of this, uh, Advocates for Truth. Uh, I would ask you to you know, take a look and subscribe to our YouTube uh, page. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and Instagram and other social media. Uh, share it. We are uh, hoping to get the message out and encourage Christians to get out, vote, and make an impact on our culture. God bless you.